So tonight we are going to begin looking at what the scriptures teach, what we teach about the Son of God from the scriptures. And remember that doctrinal statements help in the standpoint of, uh, they help you understand where, what we teach as a church, uh, helps you understand, they're like many systematic theologies, but they're always, like in, as far as authority, they are under the word of God. So we're always driving, trying to drive everything we we believe back to the Word of God, and in a sense, I continue to to sharpen what what we believe. On this particular lesson that I've done uh, in the past, when we look at God the Father, I just did uh, like paper. I gave you paper notes, and I gave you a lot of scripture, and I read them. But this time, I was going to try the PowerPoint, so you can judge which one you like better. So uh, you can let me know which one would be easier. In a sense, this will help us go quicker because the scripture will be on the screen, but there's some disadvantage in you not actually opening the scriptures yourself if we go fast enough. Keep up with that. So anyway, you can give me your feedback, positive or negative on that later. So what do we teach about the Son of God? That's what we want to look at, look at tonight or start to look at tonight. And what I'll do is I've just separated the statements. Uh, there's a statement and then I've We'll look at the individual scriptures themselves, and we'll just kind of begin going through this and see how far we get this evening. So first I'll read the, the statement, and you've got the paragraphs on the handouts there with you um, passed out. So we teach that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, possesses all the divine excellencies, and in these he is co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal with the Father. So there with our doctrinal statement, there are many other verses you could probably add to these. These are just what's in there. So I just kind of went with uh, what was in there. So John 10.30, I and the Father are one. So this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he's telling his disciples, I and the Father are one. That would be, to put it mildly, a blasphemous statement if Jesus were not divine. To to call To say that he was... Calling himself equal with God is, again, it's not something that human beings alone can do. So it's showing his divinity. And then John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, um, have, I been, have I been with you all so long and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus demonstrates who the Father is. How could he do that if he were not God? That's the point of Jesus' question to Philip. Because Philip's question was, show us the Father. And Jesus is like saying, have I been, yeah, I've been with you so long, and yet you're, how can you ask me to show you the Father? So again, it's, it's, the standpoint, it's from the standpoint that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. It's who he is. And that's what the scriptures teach, and then therefore that's what we teach. Now, there are people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, and I just want you to be on solid footing that when they say that, read through the smokescreen. No matter how confidently they say it, they are exposing their ignorance of the scriptures. When they say that, they're, they're just, they might as well be saying, I'm totally ignorant of what the scriptures say about Jesus Christ. And even if they very say it with a lot of enthusiasm and authority that Jesus never claimed to be God, they're absolutely wrong. 
You have two verses here. They're not complicated to go back to. They're not complicated to under. They're complicated to understand when you think about how is how is a human being, Jesus, God. Right? That's complicated, but it's not complicated to understand the scripture, and that's what we want to go back to. It's, it's these are simple texts to understand in their grammar and in the theology, but of course. The melding of a human being with God is is uh, is something we we don't understand. Um, it's not a mystery in the in the Paul sense because it's not revealed to us. It's something we still don't understand and probably never will understand. Yes, yeah, Sheridan. Just a little thing. I, I can't remember. I think maybe Anthony Silvestro said this or something, but it stuck with me since wherever I heard it from. I think it was Anthony Silvestro. Um, just because if you witness to people who like Jehovah's Witness and Mormons who come to the door, a question he said to ask, which I thought was so good, is why was Jesus crucified? And I thought that that was so good because I've been in dialogues before where you're using the same scripture, but they're right. doing it different. And it's because he claimed to be God. That's yes. why he was crucified. Right. So anyway, I yep. just made think. No, that's a good question. So, you know, if you are talking to somebody that, that denies the deity of, of Jesus Christ, you can ask them, you know, why, why was Christ crucified? And they'll probably come up with some, again, off-the-wall question, but it may get them thinking, as ultimately he was crucified because he claimed to be God. So, good, good point. Next statement. We teach that God the Father created according to his own will through his Son, Jesus Christ, by whom all things continue in existence and in operation. So obviously creation was before the incarnation. So the Son is in existence before creation. The Son did not come into existence at the incarnation. The Son has always been. He's eternal. It's part of the statement we just made. To be God is to be eternal. Uh, John 1.3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then get add to that Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. Speaking of Jesus, he's described as who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in a sense, we can understand Jesus was involved in creation. The Father created through the Son, uh, using the Spirit as well. The Spirit was involved in hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter 1, we're told. So Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, so the Son of God was very much involved in creation. And, and just also, this verse also helps you see that not only was he involved, he is still involved in his creation. All things, in him all things hold together. You would explode as a, as a human being. All your molecules would just repel each other if he were not at work, holding them all together, causing every part of the human body, every molecule to function as he intended. Uh, the universe goes in orbit by his power. He is holding all things together. Uh, in Hebrews 1-2 says this, God having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days 
spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Again, just pointing the fact that, that the Son was involved in creation um, and is rightly spoken of as, as the creator. So the Son was as, as involved in creation as the Father and the Holy Spirit. At times we're told different roles that they play. The Father created through the Son. We can follow the grammar of that statement. That's a theologically correct statement. But what is it, exactly does that mean? I don't think really anybody knows. God spoke, and it was so. But you understand that God's not a person, so he didn't speak in the same way we have. That's an accommodation to our our language. However God speaks, he does speak. You can hear his voice when he wants to hear, wants his voice to be heard. So when he speaks, things are created. And the again, our minds, if, if yours functions like mine, and it may or may not, um, but you're going to bounce back and forth between thinking about three gods and one god, and, and, and you can't think of three gods, because that's that's heretical. Three persons, one God. So, again, we accept these things because the Scripture teaches them. But don't let yourself fall into the, fall into the uh, airs of modalism. Or okay, now the now the Father's appearing, now the Son's appearing, now the Spirit's appearing. No, that's 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 wrong. But also, don't allow you to think of them as like totally separate because that's wrong too. Right? One God, right? functioning in three persons. So we talked about that on a, a number of occasions, but it's worth worth repeating. We serve one God. There's one God involved in creation. Uh, next statement. We teach in the incarnation, that is God becoming man, that Christ surrendered only the prerogatives of deity, but nothing of the divine essence, either in degree or kind. In his incarnation, the eternally existing second person of the Trinity accepted all the essential characteristics of humanity and so became the God-man. Philippians 2, 5-8 speaks of this. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's a lot of debate in Philippians 2. What does it mean that he emptied himself? So the, what we want you to understand is that he did not empty himself of any kind of, of deity. He can't stop being God. So what he emptied himself was all the, the prerogatives of deity. That is, that he deserves to be worshipped, that he, his glory is manifest in the nations. All that was cloaked. There were times where Jesus did not make use of his divine knowledge, saying of the end times, only the Father knows that time. So um, Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For, for in him all the fullness uh, of deity dwells bodily. So Jesus wasn't like half God. He wasn't uh, uh, some kind of like creature of like half God, half man. He was the God man. He's a hundred percent man. 
blood like you and me in his incarnation, uh, brain, everything, totally human. Check his DNA, totally human. The same token, he's 100% God. And as such, deserves our, our worship. So all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in him. So just, just we teach that Jesus never stopped being God. Uh, he didn't surrender his, his deity and his humility in the incarnation or, or the crucifixion. And I'll pause in a minute for, for like questions uh, as well and some reflections. We teach that Jesus Christ represents humanity and deity in indivisible oneness. Uh, Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. So think about that, what Micah is saying. So Bethlehem, so that's a city of David in Israel. Um, a, a, you know, too, too little to be among the clans of Judah, just that one small part of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me. That, that is from you. That is, that is a, some human being is going to rise up from that clan, is going to rise up to, to be a ruler in Israel. So that speaks of his human origins, but then you see the next statement, his goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient of days. So even in the Old Testament, you have this mystery of Christ in a sense. He's human, but he's also eternal, this ruler that will come from them. Now in the New Testament, we're given greater light with that. Um, and we see that in John 5, verses 22 and 23, we read this. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So again, it's if Jesus was, no one denies the, the humanity of Jesus, because they can see him as flesh and blood. They knew that. And when they crucified him, he bled and died like a normal human being. So, but he is one with the Father, and he deserves equal honor with the Father. And again, that would be blasphemous if he were not he were not God. Uh, John fourteen verses nine to ten. Jesus said to him, "Have I been? What we looked at before. Have I been with you all so long, and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father?" Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak for myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. And then Colossians 2.9, which we already read, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Christ represents humanity and deity and indivisible oneness. And since the incarnation, it has been so and it will always be so. That will that is not something that, that Christ just took on a bodily form for a short time. He is now eternally right, the God-man. And this, when we talk about God and uh, human, humanity dwelling together in the person of Jesus Christ, that's, that doctrinally is called the hypostatic union. If you want to put a theological uh, doctrine on it. So you can go to the, the uh, biblical doctrine, the white book. Uh, or a smaller white one and 
go to the back and look up hypostatic union. What is hypostatic union? I'll just read it to you, definition. It's the union of Jesus' divine and human natures in one person without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Each one of those qualifications is extremely important. I'll read it to you again. The union, the hypostatic union, is the union of Jesus' divine and human natures in one person without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So they don't, they don't mix, they, but it, they also can't be separated um, without confusing. Right? He's a hundred, again, go back to, to what, maybe a, a simpler way to think about it. He's a hundred percent man. And no matter how you were to examine him, he would be a hundred percent human. He would not be a, of a different DNA than humanity. At the same time, he is 100% God. So how these come together is, is what we're trying to express. And when, we, when you get deep theological things like this, you use, try to use very careful words. And it's a huge benefit many times to understand historical theology of the saints of old who have very carefully worded their statements because they have fought battles over these, theological battles over these, and it's, it would be arrogant for us not to consult them or to think that we know better and not use some of the same terms that they use. So that's why we at times default to terms like the hypostatic union that help us understand, understand that. Um, the term doesn't help us understand it, but the definition of the term helps us understand it. Next statement. Jesus, we teach that our Lord Jesus Christ was a virgin born. Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's from Isaiah 7.14. And then Matthew picks up on that. Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And he gives us the translation, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. So Christ was virgin born, and then along with that, the passage in Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. I'll just read that. It's good to just read scripture at times. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent forth from God, to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and we call the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there'll be no end to his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So thinking about the, the, virgin, the virgin birth is an extremely important doctrine. 
with without the virgin birth then there's no incarnation and without the virgin birth the 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 bloodline of sin is passed down and there you don't know you you have a child is born in sin just like we were born in sin there's no there's no messiah if there's not a virgin birth so it's extremely important to uh, our christian faith eric Young girl, young maiden. There, translation of that word. And I was just when we went to that next verse. I guess when you're sitting there saying scripture can't contradict scripture, that the argument. Have you heard about that whole thing? I'm thinking about. Yep. And then in that last verse, we just saw after these ones, she says, "I've never been a man." So I mean, is that how you would argue anybody who comes to you and says in the original language? We know what virgin means, it's very clear, but it's not the same term. It's not, it doesn't necessarily mean a woman who's never had sex. It can just mean a young girl. Right? Yeah, there are some who try to make that case, but I reject it. And there's been a very good defense to show that the Hebrew term actually does mean virgin. But there are there are some there are some, I say scholars, not heretical scholars, that try to say this that the that the Hebrew term in Isaiah doesn't mean that. But I've seen a defense that ma makes sense of, of that. So I, I would reject that. So it, 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 when, you, when you're talking about how the New Testament, definitely Matthew takes it that way. So there's no doubt when, when Matthew and Luke write, I say right here, Matthew, he's quoting Isaiah. And he interprets it as a virgin. So the question isn't, what does it mean? The question is, how does... How does Matthew justify getting from Isaiah 7.14 to application that Christ? That, that's the debate that we won't get into here. But I just want to say that there are many scholars who will say, okay, Isaiah and 7.14, the term just means a young, young woman, uh, could be a young married woman. There's a lot of scholars that try to say that. But I'm just saying I have seen a defense that makes a lot of sense that says that they're wrong. Yeah. I just wondered if that was something that, is that how you go and defend that? Those next scriptures where she says, I've never been with a man. So that almost. Yeah, I would say. the whole issue. But I yeah. didn't hear them use that in the argument of this person, this Jewish guy who's, you know, doing an apologetics live. He was yeah. arguing back and forth with um, Andrew Rappaport. And I don't recall Andrew using that in defense to explain it. So yeah, I don't know. I didn't hear the argument. But I've heard of it before. Yeah. Uh, all I could say is it's defensible to say that Isaiah was talking about a virgin. So, and if I'm debating a Jew that rejects that, then there's, there's just theologically, what do you do with what we just talked about? How God being, that, that Christ was incarnate, like God incarnate, God in the flesh. Like if he's not, then we're all dead in our sins. Better start slaughtering lambs and hope that God accepts it. Because there's no sacrifice if he's not God. There's, he just died as a man. And he, couldn't, he just died for himself because he would have been born in sin, just like everybody else. 
That's, that's why people attack it so so readily. Well, then you so. have that last line there where you kept going on reading the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Correct, correct. Yeah, there's no debate about what the Greek term means. There's debate about that term that Isaiah used in Isaiah 7.14. That's where the debate is at, just for your awareness. But I have, I have recently come across a, an article, a scholarly article, that defends the meaning of Isaiah 7.14 as, as an actual virgin. So I, I wouldn't surrender that territory. Yeah. Lisa. Yes. And is that Why? It's not the same thing. Immaculate conception is talking about Mary. Because they believe that she was without sin as well. So. They believe she's asexual? She's what? Asexual. I've never heard that. <laughs> I've never heard that she's asexual. So I don't, I don't, that'd be new news to me. Uh, they do believe that she was, it's, and again, this is a doctrine that developed later. So people began questioning like, okay, if they would say Mary is sinless. So if Mary is sinless, how did, how did she not, how was she not born with original sin? And so then, then they later developed the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, that she was conceived without sin. So. But died though. Yeah. She didn't die? Well, yeah, it's the, uh, it's the ascension of Mary, and uh, it's, it, it, the list never ends of doctrines to support idolatry of Mary, and I'm sure she hates it. Um, probably in the Lord's grace, she doesn't even know about it. That's my guess. So, but if she did, she would protest it madly. Good, good discussion. These are very important things. So I want, I want, when, you're, when you're proclaiming the gospel to somebody, do you have to tell them about the virgin birth? Is that part of the gospel? Do they have to believe that in order to be saved? I, you can't reject it to be saved. Oh, you're stealing my thunder, Chief. Yeah. You're stealing my thunder. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. That's good. That's good. No, no, no. Don't feel bad. You're, you're cutting to the chase, brother. You're cutting to the chase. Thunder again. No, that's okay. That's okay. So... Here's, here's the point of asking the question, and Keith is absolutely right, that, that you don't, someone can be saved by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they may not have read anything about the virgin birth, they may not be have confronted, may not even had time to even consider the, why the virgin birth is so necessary and so important. They place their faith in Jesus Christ, the, you know, the Lord of the scriptures, and maybe they're just reading 1 Corinthians 15, I don't know. And they're just reading that and they place their faith in Christ and they haven't, they haven't read any of this other stuff yet. They're, they're saved. They don't have to embrace, they don't have to understand and embrace the, um, the doctrine of, uh, of the incarnation. But as Keith said, if when they're taught the doctrine of the incarnation and they therefore reject it, then whatever signs of salvation that they were showing were some false now, someone can be confused about it. A real believer can be confused about it and have to wrestle with it. But if they, if they just blatantly reject it and just keep on rejecting that, then no matter what they say, they're not a Christian because you cannot reject 
the virgin birth because you're making Jesus of your own image rather than coming up underneath what scripture says and submitting to the God of the scriptures. And we talked about that last time when you're talking about God the Father, how it, our tendency is to make God into our own image. We can't understand something, so we make God to conform to what we can understand rather than conforming our our acceptance of what who God is based on the scriptures, even when we can't understand it. Yeah, speaking of the he he gets me. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl and saw some of those ads. That that those are really bad ads. And the reason that they're bad, people let me back up. People think they're good because you know they're showing Jesus doing something and showing empathy, and then they you know splash the name of Jesus um, in front of how many billions of people are watching that, and they think that they've done some kind of evangelism at a hundred million dollars or whatever that cost them to do that. But the problem is they're miss they're twisting Christianity to be a, just that of acceptance that Jesus was this really cool guy and he gets you and he'll hang out with you. I mean that's that's was Jesus empathetic? Absolutely. So they're right there. But then they don't they don't take time to consider well, why was Jesus crucified? Because he wasn't so empathetic. In the sense that he's not compromising truth. He said he was God. So why did the people like, so I understand that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And and so should we. But at the same token, he died for sinners to set them free from sin, not to just empathize them and say, oh, you're cool. I like who you are. I'll hang out with you. And they're also twisting things against you and against me who hold to the truth and won't compromise and won't celebrate LGBTQ weddings. <coughs> so they make us look like, oh, we're, we're the ones who are at fault in this whole thing. So it's, that's, a, that's a sad state that somebody spent $100 million for that. I, um, I heard it said on a podcast today, that he gets us campaign isn't going to save anybody unless it causes them to go read the scriptures and they find out who Christ is. Maybe. But that campaign can lead people to hell because it'll give them a false notion of who Christ is. And they'll just think he's a cool guy and, well, if he accepts everybody, then I'll accept him. But they haven't, they haven't really come to grips with the, the, the Jesus of the, of the Bible. Keith? So Psalm, Psalm 58 has something to say about feet washing. Okay. Psalm 58.10. Yeah, what does it say? It says, the righteous will be glad when he beholds the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Yes, Psalm 58, talking about yeah. the Lord's justice. And... Yeah, so I, the, the, the whole motif is, well, it's misplaced because... It is. The, 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 has, the washing of feet has a, a, a symbolism of, of God's justice. And then also, even in the New Testament, the symbolism of service specifically applied to the brethren. Right. And so, we're, you know, the, the, the imagery in, the, in these videos, and I won't derail anymore, but I'll just say the imagery was 
essentially to serve people who are just walking in there. So they have the big Planned Parenthood, you know, washing the feet of a, of a woman before she goes and murders her children. That is not the imagery that the New Testament yeah. evokes. Yeah, we are, yeah. We are called yeah. to be people of, who are compassionate. And we can never surrender that. But compassion is not celebrating sin or condoning sin. That is, that is uncompassionate. That is hatred. If I tell someone who's living in sin, if I say, oh, you're, it's okay for you to go ahead and live this way, right? that's actually hatred. It's loving myself because it, I, I, I can avoid the conflict but it's hatred of the other person. True compassion is going to reach out to someone with the truths that they might, be, they might believe it and be saved. So that's, it, it's, just a, it's just bad on so many different levels. And uh, so it's, it's good, good to bring that up to, to talk about these things because this is the environment we live in. Charity. In regards to just because of what you just said, it just made me think of like Jesus washed Judas's feet, right? Yeah. And like he knew what he was about to do and served him in that way. I have no idea. I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the yeah. Like, so I have no idea. But how does that coincide with what you just said then? Like, of like he served Judas in that way. Knowing what he was going to do, not that he was condoning yeah. Judas's sin or anything. Right. But well, I'd say I would respond to it just saying that that Jesus, Jesus, in in, in washing that is all the disciples' feet, even even his. I mean, there's a lesson in that. That Peter asked a question, and we don't have time to 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 go to that. But you know, Peter's like, "Oh, you're not going to wash my feet," and Jesus says, "If I don't wash your feet, I have no, you know you have no part in me." And then he overreacts and says, give me a bath, you know, but, um, (laughs) and, and Jesus said to him, you know, if, if all you need is a foot washing, that's it, you're, you're clean, but not all of you. So even that, the whole scenario, you look at it, Jesus, they, they didn't understand what he said at the moment until later after Judas betrayed him. But Jesus served Judas, even though he knew Judas was not really spiritually clean. And in a sense, if you want to try to apply that to our lives, we serve one another in the body of Christ. We're called to do that. And sometimes you don't know where somebody is spiritually. And you can't wait to figure that out. If they have a need and you're able to meet that need, then meet the need. Uh, So the Lord is compassionate to sinners, so compassionate. So we never want to be uncompassionate. So that's like, if you have an opportunity to serve an unbeliever, do it. If you have an opportunity to help your neighbor, do it. You know, serve them in love. Uh, what you can't do is like, in the name of so-called compassion, then say that, that you accept their lifestyle as A-OK, when it's not. Um, yeah, Jesse, question? Who are you pointing to? Thanks, yeah. Yeah, I, w- I was going to add basically what you just said. I think it's important to remember that the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the covenant. And the reason he was crucified was because he was destroying the works of the covenant. In that, okay, so John, John 3, 
Jesus says that the reason men don't come to the light is above the darkness. Correct. And his whole thing was to bring the light into the darkness. So I think with what the world tries to do is say, we want our sin and Jesus is okay with our sin. Right. And that's where the battle is. When the, when right. the reality of Jesus came to tell people to turn from their sins, who right. is compassionate in loving people and showing acts of mercy and those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. But it was always to turn from their sin, not to say, oh, your sin's perfectly okay, and I love you anyways. Yes. Yeah, the world wants you and wants they want us to commend their lifestyle and their sin. And we, we can't do that. And Jesus never did that. I mean, just to make, try to make that case, again, shows ignorance of, of Scripture. It's, he died to um, destroy the works of Satan is one way the Scriptures put it. He died to, to redeem you from sin. Not just a penalty of sin, but Titus makes clear from the like the the just the ongoing presence of sin he he died he redeemed you so that you might live a holy and godly life that's clear in many places in the scriptures and yes jesus was a friend of of tax collectors and sinners but there are tax collectors and sinners who came to him and sometimes he was walking by them and called them to him such as in the case of of um, um, well, I just lost his name, Zacchaeus. Thank you. You knew where I was going. So, but it's not like he was going into the brothels and saying, "Hey, everything's going on okay here." He didn't do that. So, yeah, we just—it's—it's it's a bit of a truth war that we're in, and you're—you're—you're you're seeing the truth war like in your workplaces and in your families, uh, even in, you know with. As family members wrestle with these things uh, and their confusion of gender and all that, as that just that storm just continues to brew and, and build, it will. If you haven't already been impacted by it, you will. Um, so it's it's just recognizing that it really compassion is holding to the truth and and doing so in a very loving way. I mean, we don't want to be caustic or condemning. So, but we do have to hold forth the truth. And, and we're going to see, we won't get to it tonight. We're going to see that all judgment, all judgment has been handed over to the Son. The Father has given him authority, said, you are the judge. So uh, from another standpoint, we could say that those commercials totally distort who Christ is because he is going to come as judge. And he is going to judge everybody. And there's a reason why Scripture says he will rule with a rod of iron. Okay, that, that's, that, the business that he does with a rod of iron, that's, that's uh, justice is what that is. So, Alan. You just made the statement that Jesus, if you're using an example, didn't go to the brothels, they came to him. I think so. I, I, I'm, I'm open to correction because I don't. That's in a sense, right. You need to go to them. 
Yeah, and I, I would say like on like your family members, if they're confused about their gender or let's say they're living with a boyfriend or whatever, like you want to be compassionate and go to them and call them to repentance. So I'm not saying we don't do that. All I'm saying is to, that Jesus never celebrated sin. He didn't go to people and say, Zacchaeus, it's okay for you to keep stealing from people. No, it, Jesus saved Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is like, I, you know, you, there's, I'm going to give half of what I have back. And you see all these forms of repentance that Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't even tell him what to do. He, he just does it because he knows that he's done wrong and he's pursuing repentance. But, but I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, again, I, my memory is not um, what it should be. I don't have a laser memory, uh, a photographic memory of scripture, but I think it's safe to say that Jesus like, didn't, like he went to people, um, but he didn't go to them like in places of sin. I think that's safe to say. There's a false teacher, his name is Kyle Eidelman, and he wrote a book on this, because his church has a, air quote, ministry where they send people into strip clubs and put makeup on the strippers and give them gifts before they go on stage. It's his version of washing the feet, okay? And and this was this was this was in a previous church I was in, and we had to refute this. Uh, Jesus did not go into strip clubs or brothels. He did not put his disciples in front of these places because these he did not put his men or anyone into sinful situations. Yeah. That's not what Jesus did. That is not Jesus. That's a false Christ. And there are false teachers that try to present these ideas, and unsuspecting believers fall into this thinking it's an act of compassion. What you are really doing is you are opening yourself to attack, and you are you are putting yourself in a position of compromise, and you are compromising the gospel. Yeah. I will say that emphatically because yeah. we had to refute that. No, Jesus did not do that. There's one there's one argument that was made is that when Jesus talks about the gates of hell will not prevail, the place where he was, that particular location was known for orgies and other deviation. But to argue that Jesus walked up during that time and showed that to his men and said, the gates of hell are not going to, you know, they're not, you know, they're not going to conquer the church. That it's not said in the text and it is completely antithetical to Christ. That's the only situation where you could potentially argue that I've seen. And I think that is a spurless argument and I would reject that. Yeah, for sure. So I, I have a question. Yes, Alex. So going, let's say, outside of the brothel and tell people to repent, not the same thing as going inside and say, repent. Right? Yes. Yes. That is correct. Call them. I think we we think think about um, there. What Jude talks about how our our job is to rescue, like to rescue, but not but to be fearful of contamination of of sin. So anytime you're in that kind of something ministry like that, it, it's so easily entangled. So you have to be very very careful um, with involvement like that. Um, ministries. Bro, Anthony. God rules with, or Jesus will rule with, with a rod of iron, right? Correct. And the grace movement 
today it says that the rod didn't mean the rod you strike with. It's a rod of guiding, you know, kind of deceiving the word. It's deceiving. When someone says that the rod of is not a rod of ruling, but is a, a, a rod of guiding, the whole point of the analogy, it's a figure of speech, rod of iron. What is the point of a rod of iron? You don't need iron to guide. That's the point of the illustration. So they're, I think they're mis, misusing a, a figure of speech. And Jesus is gentle. He's gentle with you. He's gentle with me. I mean, he's so compassionate, so gracious. There's just super bent. He's He is the perfect amalgamation of truth and grace. He can hold to absolute truth and be so gracious at the same time. And that's that's your model. He's without sin. So that's your model. That's who we have to follow. That's who we have to try to emulate. He's being very compassionate, yet never, never condoning or approving of sin. And sometimes your approval can, you know, they're wanting maybe, maybe they're wanting your verbal approval. And sometimes all they're wanting you to do is be silent. So that's convicted me in the past. Like I've been silent when I should have spoken up. And you know, there, there are times that for that. I mean, you think about it. Who was the greatest man, okay, besides Jesus? Who was the greatest man on the earth? Well, that's clear. What does scripture say? John the Baptist. What happened to John the Baptist? Got his head cut off. Why? What's that? He opened his mouth, but in what way? He confronted the sin of a ruler. He confronted the sexual sin of a ruler. You think people today, Christians today, would say, "John the Baptist, John, you just like you died for all the wrong reasons. Should have, should have died for the gospel, not." But don't you see that is the gospel? That's the door to the gospel. If you don't preach the law, there's no gospel. And John the Baptist is preaching the law. So you preach the law to help people understand God's expectations so they can see how far they fall short, not to beat them down, but to help them, help them to see that they're lost sinners in need of redemption. And then you point them to Christ, that he's the redeemer and saves from, you know, saves from sin. And you know that, But at times, people are going to react like the king did and... They're going to want to take your head off. They might not be able to do it physically, but they might write you out of their family. They might write you out of their friendship. You, you know, might lose a promotion at work. Don't be obnoxious, but hold firm to the truth. Be, well, Jesus didn't walk into the temple with the money changers before he washed their feet. Oh, Bob, are you reading? Jesus went into the, into the, <laughs> into the temple and washed their feet? No, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, you overtain, overturn their, their uh, tables. You rebuke them. How do you someone who says Jesus never used the rod? The Jesus when you walked on the earth, no. Well, I think if, if they say that he never used the rod, uh, I, I would say he cleansed the temple, cleansed the temple twice. If If he wasn't, ruling with a rod of iron then. I mean, when we say a rod of iron, he doesn't actually have to hold a rod of iron. What it's, it's a figure of speech talking about his 
rule and justice, and then he's going to shatter his enemies. Now, cleansing the temple wasn't shattering per se, but it was him ruling. It's him having authority and saying, you've turned my father's house, which is a house of prayer, into a, into a robber's den. Because they were. They're charging exorbitant prices for the sacrifices that they were selling. And they were only accept money in a certain coinage. And you had to, you had to exchange your money into the temple money. And of course, they charged a nice commission when they did that as well. So that's, so it really is, it's again, Lord's holiness and righteousness. So those are the examples I could say in scripture, but then like he actually did during his lifetime, but there's lots of prophecy of him coming back and ruling. I mean, just open up the book of Revelation and look who Christ is. Look at the imagery, riding on a white horse. There's a sword that comes out of his mouth and he slays them and just slays them with, with his mouth, the words of his mouth. He slays his enemies. That is the imagery of behind ruling with a rod of iron. And, and uh, also there's passages that speak of the ruling of the rod of iron. He says he'll dash them as earthenware. So the rod of iron against a clay pot does what? That's the imagery. Shattered. Like earthenware. You never use earthenware like for shields because it just shatters. That, that's the imagery. That when he comes to judge sin, that's how he's going to do it. No one will withstand him. And... Again, is he compassionate? Absolutely. But if people don't repent of their sins, then they're going to meet him as, as judge. And that's why you've got to tell people about the gospel, so that they meet him as savior and not as judge. Not in a, that ultimate sense. We'll stop there. It's a good discussion. We'll stop there and pick it up uh, here next time. And uh, just continue digging into what the scriptures teach about Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you are compassionate. If you weren't, there would be no redemption. There'd be no incarnation. There'd be no point of incarnation if you weren't compassionate and loving. It's the love of God that sent the Son to the world to redeem us and to love us, and to draw us to yourself, to adopt us as children of God, to give us rich blessings that you ordain before the foundation of the world. Lord God, help us to live righteously and holy, to live as ambassadors, to live as faithful ambassadors in, in a time that's very confused. So many people are compromising the truth, so many so-called Christians. Help us to be steadfast, and to be steadfast in a way that that just clings to your word where we're not, we're not, um, we're just guarding ourselves from pride and uh, Lord, from any kind of spirit of condemnation or irritation or anger, but that we would lovingly uh, proclaim Christ and warn people of sin for the glory of Christ our Savior and Lord, for those that will listen. And we thank you that you are still in the business of saving people and redeeming them from their sins. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.